getting coffee. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Isaiah. And where are we going today? Well, after last week, I'm glad to leave that, but guess what? We are continuing the same message. Isaiah is still speaking to the people of Judah and speaking to them of their love of sinning. We saw last week their lives had stopped reflecting God and and they have a and they have real passions in their life but none of them have to do anything with God and they're being told that their lives will lead to ruin and God is also showing his people people a deeper message here and it comes from him and he's telling them you need to build a deeper relationship with me we learned last week that they had um they had stopped worshiping him with their heart and now they only had a false appearance of worshiping him and that what they were doing was really chasing whatever their heart desired and their whatever they craved and then there's something i forgot to do last week i make sure that everyone's aware of we always made sure we knew what king was under the era of Isaiah. And right now, I really believe we are under King Manasseh. And of all the kings of Judah, he is by far the worst. He committed major atrocities during his reign. It was said that the streets of Jerusalem ran red with all the blood he committed. And this was Isaiah's last king that he served under, namely because Manasseh had him put to death. Um, so now, no doubt that that probably happened because of Isaiah's messages that we're going over here and how hard they are. It probably made more sense for Manasseh just to kill him than to listen and be obedient. Okay, and another point is Isaiah was only one of many voices in that time in the kingdom that said they spoke for God. Um, predominantly, the rest were all false, and they only spoke what they thought the king wanted to hear. They tickled that king's ears. Isaiah did not do this, which, again, led to his death under Manasseh. So why are we seeing all this? Why... Does God want us to understand his plan, this plan? He wants our salvation, but he also wants us to understand the requirements of salvation. I mean, the term is you don't just get fire insurance, but there's a relationship we need to build with Jesus Christ. What was cool, and I was sharing this with my wife earlier, is in my in my quiet time this morning, I came across this, and it was so cool after going through like numbers and other things. It's amazing how once you keep looking at different parts of the Bible, they all reflect the same way. So this is a word from the Apostle Peter, and he's actually talking about Isaiah and other prophets in the Old Testament. This comes from 1 Peter 10 and 12. 1 Peter 10 and 12. Peter was telling the people that they need to live in holiness 
and not give themselves up to the passions of this life. Sounds very familiar. Um, Peter is saying that you were not bought with material items by Christ. God did not buy you with silver and gold. He bought you with the blood of Jesus Christ, and it was ransom for that, that blood. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Folks, that's talking about what we just went through. That is so cool. Peter's talking about how we talked about the greater deliverer that ended in, in 55. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. So it's telling us salvation is no small matter. Prophets from long ago looked for this day. They looked for it and searched for it, and they could only see faint glimpses of it. We are here, and we understand it so much better, having the written word telling us all about it. But we can act still like the majority of the people back then that had no idea. Last week, we started to expose the people's rebellion in sin, and today we will continue in those charges through verse 8. Then verse 9 starts a confession of both guilt and helplessness. Verses 1 and 2 are going to look familiar. They're going to look very familiar. We're going to see that they look pretty much the same as 58, 3, and 4 did last week. We remember because last week we saw the people fasting, but they wanted God to see this holy act they were doing by fasting. God did not. And we will see today that it was not due to his inability to see it, but it was due to their lack of obedience and their heart issues. So we're going to look today at Isaiah 59, 1 through 13, in the following ways. We're going to see in verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the accusation continues. 1 through 4, the accusation continues. 5 through 8, we're going to see sinful lives described. So in 5 through 8, sinful lives described. Then 9 through 13, we're going to see a confession. 9 through 13, a confession. So let's jump into it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. 
Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. Who, he who eats their eggs die, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. The webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness and we walk in gloom. We grope for the walls, for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan the moan of doves. We hope for justice, and there is none. For salvation, and it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you, God, for your message to us. Uh, you are a mighty, mighty God, and we see it in this passage. We are so thankful for Jesus Christ and, and that blood that was shed for us, that we know salvation. Father, help us to understand the depth of it, the meaning of it, as we continue to grow in you in this life. We just thank you again for this day. Now open our hearts and our minds that we can really hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking today. In your precious name we pray, amen. So one through four is the accusation continues. And it talks about the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear too dull that it cannot hear. But what he's saying is your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden God's face from you so that he does not hear. These actions, they desired by the so-called holiness, is the same we saw in 58, 3 and 4. And God's lack of attention, of course, lack of attention on their hearts and their, by their standards, did not lie on God. Their separation from God was caused by their own actions. Behold here, 
can, can easily be in our language, surely. Now, hand is a symbol of action, of ability and resource. It is not that God cannot act. He was not off in another part of the world on vacation and letting someone else pick up his messages. Um, ear means the capacity and readiness to pay attention. Verse 2 tells us it is the people, this people has caused this division. Their lack of obedience has caused the separation. Sin, or it says here, iniquities, have opened the gulf between them and God. So there's this gulf between them and God, and that creates the alienation. And it's amazing when you think about it. When we stray off the path, even a half a degree, and we think, you know what, we're fine, we're fine. Soon we are miles away from seeing the path even, and we're on our own, and we don't even realize it, and we don't even realize that the lack of obedience in seeking God in a daily basis actually means rebellion in our life. By not going to him daily equals rebellion. Notice the, the separation state in verse 2 is between you and your God. This tells us that it is unnatural for us to be separated from him. Where there should be oneness in a relationship, there is division. And because of this, because of their actions, God's face is hidden. That should strike fear of him, but they are out of this steadfast relationship with God. They're so far off, they don't even know, even though someone's telling them. There is a major, major rift between them and God, and you know what? They're not even bothered by it. They're not even bothered by it. And so God is not merely offended by the sin, but he is offended by the sinner. So he will not hear is an absolute statement that rules out the possibility of God hearing until the sin barrier between the God and his people have been removed. And, and so I find that interesting that such a quality statement is, is that barrier is not removed until the sin is forgiven. And just today, I mean, I shared with my community group, we have a, a guy at my work that's a believer, and he had leukemia, he's been healed, but right now he's got a major infection in his blood, and he can't get to City of Hope because they don't have a bed for him, and the local hospital can't figure out what his problem is. And so he's sharing this, so I'm openly telling him in an email transition, transmission with others that, you know, Richie, I'm praying for you. And I get other people saying, well, we're praying too. And I, I want to ask you, well, who are you praying to? Who is your God in this situation? And where are they here? Because it's like, no, your prayers don't get past the ceiling. You have a major barrier. You don't even believe. That's just a word. I'd feel less offended if they would have said, we're sending good thoughts your way. Verses 3 and 4. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. 
Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Defiled with blood or stained with blood can be understood that they are unfit for God. And the image you should see here, it's not just the hand with some blood spattered on it. It's, it's the picture of a hand gripped with blood. Gripped with blood. This means there's personal involvement in the acts that shed blood. Blood is the result of sinful acts done to others. And then notice what God had Isaiah do here when he spoke in verse 3. He first speaks of the physical and outward acts of sin. He tells them that because of their sinful ways, they have blood on their hands. And he is showing them in the last two lines of verse 3 that it all started not with the physical action, but what they had in their minds. They didn't all of a sudden go out and commit these acts that led to the death of their brothers, sisters, their neighbors. It's the whole sinful lifestyle started in their thoughts. They stopped thinking and worshiping God and started worshiping the life they thought they wanted. And again, that's how it starts, right? We stray off the path a little bit and think we're fine. We just need a little break or we get too busy in life and we start looking to the left and to the right and seeing all the cool things in creation. We forget about the creator and soon we are just thinking about that created and thinking about our passions from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. We start spewing evil, and then we move into evil actions. That's just like today, right? So when you read about some of the most heinous killers in this world, the serial killers and whoever else, they didn't start off that way. There was action to them maybe, but they started moving this in their minds. They started performing little smaller things that no one really noticed maybe fires, maybe torturing small animals. Um, and then they moved up. And then once they did this, they probably had some guilt in the beginning, but they will tell you if you read about them, later they felt no guilt. They just would just, there would be their, their passions were satisfied with the evil act, and then they would build up that passion to do it again till they went out and committed more sickening acts. Verse 4, the first two lines continue the list of sins they have committed in being alienated to, from God. And it may reflect a legal, a corrupt legal system. To seek justice through the legal system can also mean they were singing righteousness. So it can mean the innocent are proclaiming righteousness but not receiving it. God's people, like we went over last week, are to make a stand for what is right and stand for righteous principles. But we saw that doesn't always happen. Back in Isaiah 5 and 22 and 23, we see a picture of men 
that were should be heroes, that were supposed to be heroes, but instead they were addicted to the evil of that time, and it says they acquitted the guilty and punished the innocent. This gives us a picture of how corrupt God's people are that are not seeking justice, but using the system to meet their evil desires. And then the last two lines of verse 4 gives us four infinitives that are absolute that summarize the people's lifestyle. They are, number one, they trust in emptiness. They trust in emptiness. Two, they speak with no value. Three is they conceive mischief. And then four is they bring forth trouble. And what this means is, one, they do not trust in God. Two is they do not speak the truth. Three is they breed mischief. And then four is they produce trouble. So empty pleas and empty arguments. Isaiah is providing testimony against the people by pointing out the failure in trusting in anything other than God. And we see that today, right, with people that completely have drunk the Kool-Aid and trust in any human entity to provide for them. And God is an afterthought, probably used after somebody sneezes. And so by believing that man has your best interest in heart, this will only lead you to disaster. The only security and the only hope that you will have is in fully, fully resting in God and being obedient to him over everything else. Five through eight, sinful lives described. Five through eight, sinful lives described described. And going through this section, it kept taking my mind back to how the Proverbs warns against straying from the wisdom of God. In Proverbs, sons are taught wisdom so they grow up and understand who to believe in and who to stay away from because they're evil. And, and one of the things I quickly found to just looking for a reference was Proverbs 4, 10 through 19. Proverbs 4, 10 through 19. It says, Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of, uprighteous, of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction and do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep until they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep until they have made somebody stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of righteousness 
is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And, and verse 17 there is a whole sermon in itself about the opposite of communion. Now in section 5 through 8, the words of Isaiah change, from the, change to the third person in both figuratively and in reality. And the charge continues from verse 4 into this section. And the opening verse gives us words hatch and hatched, and then we end in a similar fashion with the way of peace they do not know, and their actions will ensure they do not know peace. So we go from their actions to the result. So five, verse 5 and, and the first part of verse six, 6 says, They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs die, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. So verse 5 gives us two examples, eggs and a web. They are a picture of the product of a sinful life. The first one is harmful to the others, and the second one is useless to its maker. The word hatch is perfect here because it describes a fixed character. And the word weave is also accurate here because it shows us habitual contact. And then here is something that, by looking at this, that we can understand in a semi-post-COVID world. Sin is both a contagion and a frustration. The sinner is a menace to others, and the word to eats is to share in the fruits of sin and therefore share in its condemnation. We see in verse 5 starts with adder and then winds up ending with viper, and that can lead us to understand that what is bad can get downright dangerous. And while an adder's bite isn't likely to kill you, a viper's bite most likely will. And if it doesn't, you're going to wish you were. Weaving a web is a metaphor for making plans. And so it's that famous phrase we think about, right? When we go through hearing a web being weaved, it's from Sir Walter Scott. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. But God tells us here also that this web is inadequate for covering us. And it means the sinner's best efforts always leave them unsatisfied. Always unsatisfied and unprovided for. And it shows us that they just want more. Now the last part of verse 6 and into verse 7, it says, Their works are works of iniquity. The deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Now Isaiah is going to go into explaining his metaphors that he's been using just to ensure 
that we know his meaning, that we're clear on it. Their works, it gives us a clear picture of the domino effect. It shows us that the effect of a sinful life and how it is continuous. It is not just, okay, I'll do this one time and I'll be done. It's not that type of lifestyle. The sinner is personally involved, and we see in this section with the examples of hands, feet, rush, swift, and thoughts of iniquity. The results are others are hurt. And we see this in the shedding of innocent blood, of desolation, and destruction. Run to evil is a general phrase denoting doing anything that is wrong. Anything that is wrong. And the picture that I got in my mind is going through this, and I'm sure you might remember this, is at a school. If there was a fight, right? People didn't run away from it. I mean, I remember one of the last ones I was ever in. I walked out of a drafting class, and I know my wife's going to find this hard to believe, but I unknowingly must have been on somebody's last nerve. Because I walked out of that class, and I was pushed from behind. And as I turned around, I see this guy loading up to deliver a punch. So I did what was natural. I ducked. And I put him on his back. And this gentleman had a rather large nose. So as I'm sitting on his chest and looking down at him, he was gulping, knowing what was coming. And I reared back, and I just put my hand on the ground. Got up and walked away. Spared him. Spared him from a life of probably nasal surgeries. But I noticed one thing. I mean, this all happened in the mere matter of seconds. And I had to push through a crowd to get on to my next class. It's amazing. So running to evil, that's the picture I got from there. And it says, the innocent, like I was, are those that do not deserve the treatment or violence they're receiving. Again, this sinful lifestyle started with evil thoughts that turned into evil actions that turned into trouble for others. Desolation, it's a general word. What if we get out of it, it means wreaking havoc. Destruction is a breakdown of society and a picture of law and order being discarded. We're going to close this section of verse 8. It says, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them. No one who treads on them knows peace. Like I said, verse 8 is the conclusion, and it looks back over 5 and 7 and gives us a general comment, and that general comment is bracketed by the idea of peace or in this case, no peace. And to the sinner, peace is not good for anything. Peace is absolutely nothing to them. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Sinners do not know peace, and they're maintaining their lifestyle, and by maintaining their lifestyle will not lead them to peace. Justice in this case means rules or guidelines, guidelines, 
and they could care less about God and his rules. Their mouths say they do. They act like they care, but their actions do not bear the evidence needed to see this in their life. Crooked roads show us that they've made a tangled mess of their lives and the responsibility for it is all on their own. No one who treads can also read that whoever walks with them on these crooked roads will not know peace. Why? Because this road they've made will not lead to God. It is not the narrow road that Jesus talks about, right? In fact, this road is very wide that they've made. There's a lot of occupants, a lot of occupants on it. And since this road is of their making, I doubt that there is a warning sign like you see on roads telling you, you know what? Up ahead is a sharp drop-off. And even if it did, showing them where they'd be going, I doubt they would even pay attention to it. Now, leaving verse 8, we're going to leave the third person also, and we're going to go to the first person. It happens because this is indicating to, to us that some of the people they're being talked to have drawn or been pulled to repentance by God. And Isaiah is including himself in this crowd that he's speaking about. Now, and we now know in our lives and in this era that the desire to repent is done because only of the all-powerful work of God. Only he can remove people's sin, nature, convict them of their sin, and draw them to God. So Isaiah's preaching of God's word in 58 and the God bringing conviction to those people that heard it, he has chosen some of them to repent and brought them to a place of salvation. They repent for living in sin, and we see it in this section. The darkness, helplessness, bitterness, and hopelessness, and their personal guilt of living in this sin, we see it in 9 through 11, and they will understand their need for God. So 9 through 13, we're going to talk confession. And then we're going to start with 9 and 11. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. So in verses 9-11, we see that 9 starts off with the repentant one saying, justice is far from us. And righteousness is too far away and it's not catching up. And then they end in 11 saying, salvation is far from us. And then this verse 9 starts off with the word, therefore connecting us to 8. 
since the sinner has no peace, we see that saying in 9, justice is far from him. Isaiah again is using this in the first person plural that means he identifies with these people and their sin. And we're going to continue here in the picture of light and darkness that we saw last week. And here it is, a clear or well-lit picture of Jesus. It's an idea here of a light pointing to Jesus, and we only see it here in Isaiah and Micah 7, verse 8. Micah 7, verse 8. Let me read that to you. It says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. That's only four little lines in Micah, but packed with power when referring to the light. Isaiah may have been pointing them to the light and yet unknowingly pointing to the light that's going to come from the second advent. But we see the, we see the light when we're saved, and we are infused with joy, gratitude, and we know of this heavenly brightness. And then I like this last half of what Micah wrote. It says, when I sit in darkness, God will be my light. He does not say when I lie in darkness, like signifying death, but he says, as I sit in darkness. This means while we were helpless to save ourselves, we were not without hope, like most of this people that we're talking about in Isaiah's day. Darkness is a picture of sorrow, captivity, adversity, and death for those who are in darkness. But God's light brings gladness, freedom, and happiness. We were stuck in this darkness ourselves, and we were helpless. But God, rich in mercy, brought us to that light, and like Micah says, he is that light for us. But right now, darkness is what these people have. They hope for light, but they have none. And it says they walk in gloom. They were so desperate for God's light here that any spark would have been welcome. Verse 9 shows us that in their own strength, their own strength, they only found darkness. Verse 10, the darkness is found. The darkness they found is a sign of how deep their sin is. It is a picture of how bad human nature is. They aren't just in darkness because they're blind. They have no eyes. There is absolutely no chance of getting better, of being healed, to be able to see light when you have no eyes. They cannot see anything, so they stumble at noon as if it was twilight. We see them groping twice and stumbling. These word pictures are to ensure we understand that this condition is eternal and it's from sin. So for them to be healed, it will take a miracle from God and they will, be need, they will need to be made into a new creation. Verse 11, 
growl is an angry growl for these believers as if they were mad with the with the sin that they realized they they have made and the havoc they've caused not only in God's world but their own world as well groaning now this leads to some really cool references as we see Jesus also use groans as he walked through his time here on earth. We see in Mark 7.34, Mark 7.34, when he healed a deaf man, he tell, it tells us he looked up to heaven and sighed or groaned as he commanded the man to be healed. Now in John 11.38, John 11.38, Jesus, when he was about to raise Lazarus, from the dead, was deeply moved, we could say, groan. Isaiah beat these New Testament apostles in using this word. We get it when we see that Hezekiah, knowing that he was sick and going to die, groaned, moaning to God because of the sorrowness, the sorrow that he had in his sinfulness. 12 and 13. We're going to go over their guilt. Their guilt. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Many times as we've gone through Isaiah previously, we've seen this courtroom scene. Well, today we're back in it. We are back in a courtroom scene. God is the judge and sin. Sin is the prosecutor. So here, sins that we commit or iniquities are seen as specific lapses as an individual offense. I know I'd be voting that they would be a package deal, like a two-for-one, but it's not. Therefore, each sin that we commit will testify against us here. Ouch. Now, in this courtroom, we will have no defense. There will be indisputable evidence against us. We will be known by our companions. That's the sinful life we keep. We will have to confess that we are guilty. We will have to state that we have intimate knowledge of our guilt. It is a picture of us stating we have insider information of how wicked our heart is. Verse 13. Like in verse 4, 13 uses an absolute to pass a general statement on about the sinner. It shows us that the sinner and thought about this so internally and so much about their actions, it is like they conceived the sin. So the judge who we stand in front of is the one that we have actually sinned against. We have rebelled against his commands and ignored his love. We have turned our back on God and sought our own way. And it's sad because like we see 
God showing us in Jeremiah 2.2. Jeremiah 2.2. It says, God says his people at one time had such devotion to him like a young bride to her, to her husband who was filled with so much love and devotion that she followed him out into the wilderness. But that's not the case now. We sin, we deny God, ignoring him, ignoring him is the same as denying him. Oppression used here is mistreating those who we are in a position to be over, and this must be confessed. Like we saw in the passage last week, you cannot be holy before God when you are oppressing those in your care. Revolt means an arrogant departure from God. Before God, our judge, we cannot say that it was our conduct to blame, but our, but our hearts had the right intention. Rather, it is from our hearts where the wickedness originated. Isaiah was there to provide guidance, but very few listened, and by studying this book, we have seen a people far from God. And it's no doubt, since we're getting closer to the end of Isaiah, these passages will get harder and harder. And the majority of people then, much like the majority of people today, never seem to learn, never seem to get it. And it's, it's easy to see it's getting harder. By going back through the entire Bible from early on, even from there into the New Testament, we see, we see examples of this. So one example is in Numbers 21, 1 through 9. It's real simple. We see a people attacked, and God heard their cry. A Canaanite king, Arad, had come and attacked him and took some of, of their peaceful hostage. They all, in one agreement, cried out, or we'd say prayed to the Lord for revenge. God heard them. God gave the Canaanites over to them, and they destroyed them utterly, utterly. One verse later. One verse later. They're in the desert complaining to God for whatever reason. For whatever reason. So God sent in serpents to start biting them. And Moses had to put up a bronze serpent for the people to look to to be saved. Again, that's another great sermon. And many more examples, but a big one, a one that's very painful, is we saw this in chapter 7 of Isaiah, when they were going to be attacked by a northern kingdom, and, and God sent Isaiah to meet, meet the king Ahaz in the upper pool, as Ahaz was looking to see if they were ready for this attack. God, through Isaiah, asked Ahaz to make any, ask anything of him. Nothing's too small. Nothing is too small. Ahaz asked for me to give you anything. And Ahaz passed. He passed. 
Imagine how far away you have to be from God to not even ask for that. When you're told, ask me anything, nothing is too big. And then time after time as we continue through Isaiah, we see leaders sought help from other countries, never once turning to God, godly only acting when they couldn't find anybody else. And then the worst example, even worse than A.S., is when you had Jesus right in front of them, right in front of these people, and the majority of them did not listen. They only asked Jesus, oh, prove it, give us a sign. This is after him healing people, raising someone from the dead. They still refuse to believe. So praise God that we have a, an understanding of repentance and this forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And our mission, our mission is to grow in knowledge of him and his requirements on a daily basis. I just imagine if they would have behaved like the psalmist who shared with the entire congregation the joy he had by knowing God and knowing God listened and answered his prayer of salvation. And we see that in Psalm 66, 16 through 19. Psalm 66, 16 through 19 says, Come in here, all you who fear the Lord, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Amazing. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for your love, your great mercy, your miraculous work that's taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. May we never take that for granted. May we realize that we are on earth for one mission only. That's not to get caught up in the created, but to daily seek you for our marching orders, read your word to grow stronger in our faith and in our, in our outward acts of obedience, Jesus, it's a hard thing to do. It's easy for me to say, but it's so hard sometimes for us to do. Help us to be drawn to you. Help us to really, really want to get that deep relationship because times are only getting tougher in this world, Father, and people will gladly reject you to lean on a human government to provide for them. May that never be the case with us. We love you so much. Amen.